The Start On Demand. Hey, it's Brett. It's the Tuesday edition of the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And today we're going to ask the question, should Winnipeg consider following Calgary's lead when it comes to the speed limit in residential zones? Because they're seriously considering reducing the speed limit on a permanent basis from 50 kilometers an hour to 30 kilometers an hour or maybe 40. Should we do that here? Also, would you wear a Fitbit to get a better rate on your life insurance? There's an insurance company in the United States. It's actually an American branch of a Canadian company that is looking into this. They want to track Fitbit data and use it to apply it to life insurance applications. Cockroaches. There's a Winnipeg woman who wants to get out of her apartment lease because she's got cockroaches. And the company says, no dice. So we're going to talk to Taz Stewart from Poolins. How do you get rid of cockroaches? He says, not easily. We'll also tell you the story of a ring of pharmacists in Ontario. Well, not a ring, but a bunch of pharmacists who in Ontario who flooded the streets with fentanyl by getting it from their own pharmacies. We'll speak with a sex abuse survivor of Graham James. His name is Greg Gilhooley. He's going to weigh in on the sentencing of Bill Cosby. The speed limit, 30 kilometers an hour. We're all familiar with that as it pertains to residential areas are in school zones but it just goes from september to june mm-hmm. not permanent and it's only during certain times but there is at least one city in canada that might be moving towards a permanent 30k you speed limit you got it brett calgary city city council here's the headline from global news calgary city council votes to move forward with study of residential speed limit reduction city of calgary administrative staff will move forward with a plan to develop the best recommendation for reducing the speed limit on some residential streets. Councillors voted 8-6 to last night to endorse a motion calling for speeds to be reduced by up to 20 kilometres per hour. Councillor Drew Farrell led the charge earlier this month to see the unposted limits on neighbourhood streets reduced to 30 kilometres per hour. When that proposal was met with mixed reactions, she said a speed limit of 40 kilometres per hour could be a good compromise. Just like in Winnipeg, Loren, the unposted speed limit, the old idea, 50 kilometers per hour, unless otherwise posted, stands in Calgary. They're looking to change that on residential streets. And I think it's high time we looked at it in our community as well. I think they are. So from what I read, the argument is that you can dramatically cut down on accidents if you just even lower the speed limit by 10 kilometers per hour. And so pedestrians would be safer. Your odds of surviving in a car crash would be safer. I I think of the opposition people had. I mean, the school zones are still insane. People don't drive slow through the school zones. So we, we couldn't get on board with 30 kilometers around 150 schools. I can imagine Winnipeggers' reaction to even cutting 10 kilometers off their speed limit, which I don't think anyone's even doing in the first place, 50. 
That's a really good point. I, I, you know, I, Corridon Avenue is a prime example of a divided road, right, Brett? For a good stretch of it, it's got a, it's got a center boulevard, and it's fifty kilometers per hour. And to imagine that it's legal for people to go down all those side streets in River Heights or around the bay where I live at that exact same speed seems ludicrous to me. Why? Well, because that that's a controlled. It's it's a controlled environment. Like I said, you've got a divided road. To imagine that you're allowed to go on a crescent or a bay where you've got bends, you've got driveways uh, meeting onto a road, and you're allowed to go the same speed, I, I, I think it, it, it's ridiculous. I think 30 is too slow. I, I agree. 30 may be too slow. I think 30, in some cases, if you're going through a tight, you mentioned River Heights, and there are, like, there's... If, depending on the route I take to work, uh, I actually stopped taking this one route because I went through three school zones mm-hmm. in a matter of five minutes. But the streets are tight, and there's a lot of trees, and there's a lot of parked cars, so you never know where, if a kid might pop out from behind one of those cars, as I once did when I was playing, uh, we were playing football in the street on Horton Avenue West in Transcona when I was, I don't know, eight or nine years old, and I darted out from behind a car, Knew a car was coming, but I decided to run out into the street, and this lady got out of her car. I was like right in front of the car, and she got out and she wove this tapestry of obscenity at me uh, because I was being an idiot. I don't mm-hmm. know, but you never know. But you're a kid. Yeah, you you're know, a kid, and so that's why I think in that context, a 30 kilometer an hour speed is okay. But there are other spots like on Harrow where you're driving by the school that's just by the Manitoba Hydro building. Right. I think 30 is too slow. There are some stretches. uh, Grosvenor is another example. St. Matthew's has a stretch where it's 30 kilometers. And I feel like uh, Talbot, I can think, like streets that are not major thoroughfares, but they're still busy thoroughfares. Right. I think 30 is too slow for that kind of a street. And then what about enforcement? I mean, we get mad right now again to bring it back to the school zone issue, which I think is great. 30 kilometers around a school zone, I think is, I have no issue with that. But then when we enforce it, people get upset because it's on a Monday or a Saturday or Sunday or, or holiday and all the, and all the rest. And, and, People can't stand getting a ticket. And so we, you'd have to enforce it to make people start to understand that it's the rule. Police don't have time to be go, you know, no, but based I've, on every street to force people to slow down. Because I think that's the only way to get people to listen. You get a ticket, you're like, oh, right, that just cost me. I think a majority of people respect the rules of the road. I think where enforcement frustrates people is when it feels like it's a, uh, you know, the old cliche, it's a tax grab where it's not about safety, where it's about generating revenue. And when you show up on a Saturday, or or I guess you can't really do a Saturday, but when you show up uh, during Christmas break or Easter holidays, even though it's within the letter of the law, that's when people get super frustrated. It feels as though now it's about generating revenue versus keeping kids safe. And that's when people get frustrated because I am as in favor of the 30 kilometer an hour speed limit around schools as anybody. But I think it's ridiculous when they enforce it on holidays and at times of the year when there's clearly nobody at the school like on Christmas but Eve. But it's about habit breaking. So you're trying to break a person's habit. No, that's so not we're why so they're doing used it. To- I think it is for a majority of people. Then then it should be all year round. It should be all year round around the schools. If it's about breaking the habit, it should be 24-7-365 if it's about about habit forming. I just don't think the majority of people 
are following the rules. I don't think people respect the letter of the law. I think you have a good percentage of people who are speeding all the time on our streets. And so if we just lowered it a little bit, you might start to create a habit where we drive a little slower. If you're a pedestrian standing on the street, 30 still seems really fast. If you're out there with your kids, people, there's all the times where people will be zipping by our residential neighborhood. And I'm like, as a pedestrian, I'm yelling, slow down. And in a car, I don't even notice it. So I think you have to break that habit. So if you start by lowering the limits in certain areas, people might just start thinking, I'm going too fast all the time. Kathy has weighed in at 204-780-6868 and says, I think that the speed trap in a school zone is the inconsistency of the posted 30 kilometers an hour. If the speed limit was always 30 kilometers, then people would be used to it and the tickets would not happen nearly so often. And Tim uh, is suggesting that, listen, Corden has a posted speed of 50 kilometers an hour. They're talking about your residential streets that do not have speed posted, such as your secondary roads like a Headmaster or Sun Valley or Edison. And that's the point, to imagine that you can go the same speed on a Corridon Avenue or on stretches of Grant Avenue where it's 50 and you're legally allowed to go on a side street at that same rate of speed is absolutely ludicrous. They need to lower the speed limit on those secondary routes and those residential streets. Do you think 40 is okay for those? I think 40 would be fine. Because 40 turns into 45 or maybe 50, but you know what 50 turns into? It turns into 60 real quick. And when someone comes whipping around a corner on a blind corner and they're going 50, they're not breaking the law. They're driving not for conditions and they're driving dangerously, in my opinion. Uh, but what are you going to say to them that when they're going 50 on a crescent or on a bay in a residential area? They're not breaking any law. It does also become confusing because if you, you know, the more you change the signs on each street, you know, you move one block over, you go from a 50, you go to a 40, you go to a 30. You have a real argument for, I don't know what my speed limit is supposed to be. Oh, yes. But you know what? But people don't drive to conditions and and people are always just trying to get somewhere faster. It's like the rule about people don't understand the rule about what you do on a residential street when there are parked cars. Everybody's under the assumption that just because you're on the side where there are no parked cars, you have the right of way all the way through. Well, you have sometimes have to have, take an allowance and give an allowance for someone coming the other way on the side of the park cars to give them a chance to pull over. Just because you're on that open side doesn't mean it's pedal to the metal. And I think actually, and I, I could be wrong in this, I need to, to verify this, I'm just thinking of this at the top of my head, but I think actually... One of the previous discussions we had uh, when we did our, our afternoon shift was that I think the people who are going in the same direction as the parked cars actually have the right of way. I'm not. I need to verify that, though. I don't remember my driver's ed manual, but I think it's because the assumption is: well, if you're going, you got, the person driving beside the parked cars has to pull over and allow the other car to come. But I think actually it's the other way around. Regardless, uh, as far as Calgary is concerned, so the first part of this report is going to be presented to the Transportation and Transit Committee in the second quarter of 2019. So it's a long way off yet, and that's going to look at which option is best. For the reduction, 30 or 40 kilometers an hour. And the neighboring city of Airdrie has a speed limit of 30K on residential streets and has since the the early 1980s. So Airdrie way Mm. ahead of the curve on this one. Here's 
the headline from Reuters. Strap on the Fitbit. John Hancock to sell only interactive life insurance. Jeff Braun's here. Kelly Moore's here. Lauren McNabb, what are we talking about here? We're talking about the idea that so that these guys are a division of Manulife Financial, and they essentially want to figure out a way to revamp life insurance. So if you're applying for life insurance, they're kind of tired of you know, people coming in sick and unhealthy and all the rest, and they're going to monitor how you do with your fitness, your sleeping, and all the rest through your Fitbit. So you would potentially qualify for a lower life insurance policy if you allow them access to this device that you wear all the time. All the time? Well, some people wear it through the night because yeah. it can monitor their sleep. It tells can, you if you're having a good what about a, like, heart rate. Can you wear it swimming? Is it waterproof? Some of them are. It would tell you if you were getting active in the night, if you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it would... You have to get up a couple of times. Oh, that's not the what you were talking about. I just meant if your heart rate got elevated at any point in the evening, it would point that out. But the, the, the whole idea is that they want to say, you know, look, like you're, you're, we want to give people good policies who are actually showing that yeah. they exercise and they do things to take care of themselves. So would you allow that, Kelly, like them well, access for the better insurance plan? I Well, I would regardless uh, because I, I don't really find this a whole lot different than how car insurance is done out. You have fewer accidents, you drive safer, you get a better premium. So you take better care of yourself, you stay in good health, you get a better premium. I don't know, to me, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. One of the, sorry, Kelly, one of the naysayers is more like the idea, though, that then they're going to be able to weed people out so they can start targeting. If they have access to all your information, they can go after the healthy people well, wearing Fitbits. Of course, Fitbits that's the goal. And then hike up the rates for those who are refusing to wear one. So if I just because I refuse to wear one shouldn't mean that I qualify for a lower life insurance. Well, I, but I think when you do apply for life insurance and that, don't you have to submit to some blood tests? And, Sometimes. And, yeah. 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 I did yeah. it for my last one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've done it a, a couple of times. So Yeah, uh, you got to give blood, you got to do a urine sample, Exactly, yeah, yeah, because they want to know what the parameters of the person they're dealing with. Well, they want to know what the risk is, right? Exactly. It's it's the same with your driver's abstract. If you deal with a private uh, automobile insurance, you have to submit your driver's abstract. Your rates will go up just like they do here in Manitoba, but sometimes way more dramatically in in jurisdictions where they have private insurance. And they also, they're borrowing this from the automobile industry. Sure they are, Because there are different companies now where you can get this little cube that plugs into your car and it monitors everything. Everything you do in your vehicle and based on your driving habits, they will uh, prorate or they will curate your rate based on how good of a driver you are. And not just accidents and speeding tickets, but how you actually drive every single day. I'm a great driver, so I got no problem with that. (laughs) I wouldn't wear this Fitbit thing, though. I'd, I'd submit myself to a physical once, twice. They have a monthly if they want. I don't mind a doctor touching me all over. That's fine. Just, but I don't want to wear that thing on my wrist because I have to. Just go That'd for the be, couch you might as well, special. They might as well throw you in prison. But what yeah. does it tell you even, too? Like, So I get it monitors your heart rate. It'll tell you if you're sleeping well. I, can it do a calorie intake? Is it Unless I'm inputting, I had five drinks today. Well, like, once you, What kind of information is once it? Once you gain so much weight, it busts off your wrist. <laughs> I know you're too fat. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It might even have uh, sensors to, uh, it might even be able put sensors in regard to what's coming out of your skin. So in terms of maybe if you're consuming alcohol, you know how sometimes some people start to smell like the booze they're drinking? 
You know it's time to slow down at that point in time. What what about privacy issues? Well, this is the thing, right? Are you prepared to do it voluntarily? And then as McNabb says, is that their opportunity or their excuse to weed you out if you're unwilling to be a volunteer in terms of purchasing this product? It's a slippery slope for a lot of people. Yeah, well, like I say, the, the procedures have been in place before this even happened. And and I, I'd be curious to uh, talk to people. Where was but it? not South, to this extent, Kelly. So, so no, hang on for a second. Just where, where this is, has originated, South Africa and Britain. what was the other country? Britain, yeah. Just to see what the level of invasion is before we start to, you know, go that route. Uh, I, I would ask a few questions because apparently it's gone well uh, in those two countries, so... Why has it gone well? Well, it's the same as the the conversation about cameras in public areas, closed circuit TV, right? Cameras. Well, if you've done nothing wrong, you have nothing to hide. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I don't like that. A argument. lot of people no. don't like that. No, yeah. I feel like that's 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 insane. Just because I, I should have my own privacy, I shouldn't have to prove to you right. anything. Yeah. That I'm I shouldn't prove that I'm doing the right thing. I shouldn't have to prove to you that I'm being healthy. You already take my blood. You come and pinch my fat on my forcep the last time I got life insurance with a BMI or whatever they do. I mean, they already did the whole thing. <laughs> Isn't they, that telling you enough? Like, did, did they look over, peer over the oh, clipboard she, all like, judging she, like, takes my you? blood pressure and kind of shakes her head and then starts pinching things. And I qualified, but I don't know, probably barely. Like, I don't, I feel like that, you know, I'm already putting myself out there. It, it, I get that they're providing something, but I'm paying for it. So I choose the parameters of that. And I feel like them monitoring me potentially for hours on end. So I don't are know. you prepared? Are you prepared to pay more to not have to go through that rig and roll or no. not have to wear it? Well, no. you might have no choice. No, I do. Right now I do. Thank you very much, Jeff Braun, Kelly Moore, Lorraine McNabb, Greg Mackling. We want to talk, Loren McNabb, about cockroaches. Oh, who doesn't want to talk about cockroaches? It's all because a Winnipeg woman is moving out of her downtown apartment or trying to because of an unwanted pest. As you've been hearing in the news with Jeff Braun, Rebecca Collins says her apartment block on Broadway has been sprayed several times for cockroaches, but they just keep coming back. It's all part of what some say might be a growing problem in Winnipeg. Taz Stewart is with Poolin's Pest Control and joins us now. Good morning, Taz. Good day, good day. Hopefully everyone's doing well this morning. We're doing all right. Let's just start with this bug. It's little, but it's mighty, it sounds like. how t- Just how tough are they to get rid of? I call it the perfect insect. It's been around for about 300 million years, and they're almost impossible to kill if they get into locations. Uh, cockroaches, in a nutshell, love dirty places. They like food all over. They like water. If they don't have any water, they can die within about seven days. If they have no food, they die in about 30 days. But that never happens because they even eat their own poop. <laughs> oh, wow. boy. That's great. Hey, Taz, hey. Uh, a lot of people associate cockroaches with warmer climates. Is that a myth? No, that's where they sort of came from. They're, they are Asian descent, and they are a great hitchhiker. They can be in cardboard, they can be in new equipment, they can be in any food stuff. So when I say you need to be hospital clean when you're dealing with cockroaches, you got to be as clean as a hospital to be more successful in getting rid of them. Now, Taz, I know somebody who's dealing with cockroaches in their apartment. They've got a spick and span clean place, but it's a, it's a six-story apartment, lots of suites in there, and there have now been a couple of cockroaches pop up so if the place is clean where are the cockroaches coming from 
And that's where with the Poolin's uh, cockroach control program, we need to find the source suite. And what that means is if you're in the cube, so you're side, side, above, below, and across, we want to make sure that the cockroach is either migrating into your suite from another suite, and it's surprising how many places I've been. You've got a pristine, beautiful apartment, and right beside it is absolutely hoarding food everywhere, water everywhere. It's just almost impossible to control in those situations because roaches will go into areas where those dirty conditions are. They'll hide 75, 80% of the time. So another difficult uh, part in controlling them. So turn off the lights, see where their harborage sites are. We then spray if it's above five uh, average roaches per trap. And we do gel baiting if it's below that. And when you're at the gel baiting stage, it's much easier to hopefully control them, assuming you're that hospital clean. I know we talked a few years ago, Taz, with you about how they were really invading Winnipeg and they were probably going to become the new number one pest in North America. Are we there yet? We're, we're, we're getting there for sure. Our number of calls keep on increasing and lots of multi-tenant uh, places out there. Lots of people, new Canadians. They've come from places where roaches are the norm, so they don't report to their property managers, their resident managers. And with roaches, in as little as 36 days, you have a fully sexually reproductive roach that can now reproduce another 30 to 48 new individuals in another 36 days so that you can rapidly multiply. And now, Taz, uh, with mosquitoes, we hear about West Nile virus as a potential risk to human health. What is the risk to human health of a cockroach? Any? There is. They are in the Public Health Act. Uh, they cause stomach issues. They get. They carry lots of uh, just staph, E. coli, you name it. You start ingesting those foodstuffs with that material in it, you'll then get sick from cockroaches. So it is a public health issue and should be dealt with uh, as such. But how would you get sick? Like, for example, if they're crawling around, maybe, uh, God, I hate to even talk about this, but let's say they're in your kitchen sink or whatever when you're not looking. Yeah, so they go into your water glasses. Cockroaches do have a distinctive odor to them. When I go into restaurants and places, if it is a heavy infestation, you will smell that smell. And once you smell it once, you'll never forget it. Um, You'll get stomach illnesses. Actually, the roaches, their skins when they molt, actually cause allergies in people with weakened immune systems, young children as well. So they they are a very troublesome thing, and some people can die from some of the diseases they can carry on their bodies. It's easy to put this onto the you know the owners of apartment complexes or buildings or all the rest, and I, but it sounds to me like if you don't find the source and if you don't get in right away and if you don't spray a certain number of seats, you're you're almost fighting a losing battle. Yeah, there are some locations where the people uh, there's language barriers. They're used to you know leaving their stoves full of that greasy uh, oily on the walls, and the roaches love hiding in behind that uh, tin foil and in those locations almost impossible control and it's not the fault of the rm or the pms it's the resident not following the prep and the procedures uh, identified by the pest control companies doing the job yeah we got a statement from sussex realty yesterday with regard to this particular case we've been speaking about that has created this discussion in the first place taz i'll just read it quick at sussex we work extremely hard to deal with pest issues it is in our best interest to deal with these issues as quickly as efficient and efficiently as possible our success in this area is dependent on the cooperation of tenants in preparation and follow-up we cannot comment on this particular situation as we don't have any details about their issues. We encourage tenants to let us know as soon as we have problems and are happy to help in every way we can. And I think the second sentence is critical, dependent on the cooperation of tenants in preparation and follow-up. That that preparation and that follow-up includes that hospital clean and also reporting when you see these little guys uh, immediately, correct? 
100% correct. That is a great universal statement they've put out there. All property management companies that we deal with say the same things. If we do not have tenant cooperation, pest control will fail, and that preparation, pulling all the stuff out of the cupboards. Uh, it's not just a kitchen and bathroom roach. Uh, this German cockroach can be found anywhere in the home. So investigating, is there a water bottle? Is there a food source in a closet? Is someone forgot something? They'll develop and uh, really reproduce very rapidly and cause another problem. And then your neighbors have a problem and it just grows from there if you don't do anything proper, i.e. the hospital clean of Ta- homes. Taz, we got to get out in about 30 seconds here. But what if they're coming in from the walls? Uh, is there a situation where you'd have to fumigate an entire building? Uh, what we do, we have a special machine when we go fill up with wall voids and actually go sometimes drill holes in walls to get them because besides stoves, you usually have a false wall. Great place for them to hide, to go underneath the baseboard up into the piece and hide until it's safe to come out. So getting in there with the spray, that's the best way. It's not called fumigation. It's actually a chemical treatment. Uh, haven't fumigated a building in a heck of a long time in Winnipeg, that's for sure. Okay, Taz, hey, thank you very much for joining us. As always, we appreciate the time and access. Never an issue. Thank you. And Taz is with Poolins. And I should know this by now. We hear the jingle all the time. How do you get a hold of Poolins, Greg? 233-2500. Right now, we want to shift gears to a headline at globalnews.ca that reads how a handful of pharmacists flooded Ontario's streets with lethal fentanyl amid a national opioid crisis. Yeah, we've even been hearing stories of pharmacists getting prescriptions from dead people, people who don't even exist. It's all part of a global news investigation, which includes exclusive police photos of drug deals in broad daylight and forged prescriptions for patients whose names were later found in obituaries. Carolyn Jarvis is the chief investigative correspondent with Global News and joins us now with more. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning to you both. This sounds startling. Talk to me about what we're hearing here with uh, and what you saw in those photos of drug deals and broad daylight and all the rest. Oh, it was incredible. This is a London, Ontario pharmacist who obviously figured he wouldn't be caught. This is an operation that went on for a couple of years where he was faking names of people, people that were literally fictitious. The police later went back to the doctor who was written on the prescription to say, hey, why did your why did your patient need this much oxycodone or fentanyl? And the doctor would say, that's not my patient. Or he would uh, find in obituaries people who had recently deceased and create prescriptions for them that were obviously uh, amounts of opioids he would later traffic uh, to a suspected drug dealer in the neighborhood. He wouldn't have even been caught were it not for a totally tangential police surveillance operation that he quite literally walked into. Until that point, nobody knew what he was up to. Well, how did they figure it out? What was he doing and and what made it so uh, obvious that it tipped off police to be watching this individual, Carolyn? They weren't watching him. They were watching a drug dealer, a suspected drug dealer, I should add, because he has not been convicted. But they had an undercover operation ongoing into this suspected drug dealer. And Patel's misstep, that's the name of the pharmacist, was that he met with him in broad daylight. So they would meet in the in the parking lot of Canadian Tire or, you know, whatever strip mall in central Ontario. And uh, he would bring a package with him into his car. And then the drug dealer would get into his car and then move back to the other car and take the package with him. And the drug deal was done. And over and over and over again, police were able to capture images chronicling this series of events. And so literally Patel's downfall was that he wasn't um, 
it wasn't private enough about these uh, very dubious encounters. What about, I'm um, looking at the story as well, there's another pharmacist here by the name of Wasim Shaheen, who, uh, did he orchestrate an armed robbery? Yeah, unbelievable. So this is an Ottawa pharmacist, yet another case of a pharmacist turned drug dealer who uh, was was notified by his assistant that they had discovered inventory discrepancies at their pharmacy in, in terms of the opioid inventory, which means the gig was up. And so to try to cover up this big shortfall of opioid inventory, he plotted with the drug addict to whom he'd been giving all these drugs, a robbery at his own store. And the, the drug addict records this entire conspiracy on his cell phone. So we've got the cell phone recording where they plan the robbery. Then there's security video where you see the guy wearing like what looks like a scream mask, a Halloween mask, robbing the pharmacy, just like they had laid out in the phone call. And then the 911 call where he calls to report this fake robbery. And he curiously, he can't describe what the robber looked like, even though he was just face to face with him, supposedly because he wanted him to be able to get away which he only did for a short time. So, yeah, two instances of pharmacists, and that was of nine that we uncovered through the course of our investigation in the past five years, pharmacists who became drug dealers for opioids. Carolyn, is this part of a growing trend? Is there a concern that we might be seeing more of this from pharmacies, or is this just sort of a very small section of the population? What are the, what are the associations saying in Ontario and elsewhere? Well, I don't think this is necessarily a growing trend, but I think whenever um, there is an opportunity, greed, uh, unfortunately, gets the better of some people. And with an opioid crisis, there is money to be made on the black market. And I guess people were lured uh, by that. It's quite unfortunate, but there's nothing to indicate that this is on the uptick uh, vis-a-vis anything else. There's going to be, you know, bad apples in every lot, and that's what we're seeing. However, experts are saying to us, you can't disregard this as just a select few that are straying from the pack. Because when you're dealing with a pharmacist who becomes a drug dealer, they've already got the keys to the vault. And so their access to supply is huge. Now, I asked one drug enforcement officer, what's the greatest amount of fentanyl patches he's found on a street-level dealer that he's busted? And he said, I don't know, 500? Well, the guy in Ottawa was busted for 5,000, trafficking 5,000 maximum strength patches. The guy in London, Ontario, was busted for having trafficked 3,000 maximum strength patches. Those together jointly could could really be more than 30,000 potentially lethal doses of fentanyl put on the street, just two pharmacists together. So while, yes, they may be one-offs, the experts say you just can't ignore it. Carolyn Jarvis is the chief investigative correspondent with Global News. She's joining us now. And Carolyn, uh, one of the first rules of being a drug dealer is uh, not to use your product. How many of these pharmacists uh, pharmacists are breaking that rule? You know, actually, we didn't see drug drug dealers who pharmacists, drug dealers who became drug addicts themselves. Uh, the motivation that seemed to be the underlying theme here was money um, and greed. Uh, there was an instance where we saw somebody whose a loved one was a drug addict, and they be they dealt drugs, they trafficked in opioids to try to get opioids to their loved one, to their spouse in that particular case. But in the, in the large number of cases, in, for the most part, I should say, most of them were doing it for monetary gain. Do we need to see any changes, Carolyn, in terms of how we track and monitor this? Or are the current checks and balances doing what they should? No, because they're not catching these. And the amount of drugs that Health Canada registers as being unaccounted for or missing every year suggests that this problem is far more widespread than, than we are catching. I mean, these people were caught all by chance. So how many others are out there that could possibly be doing this and contributing to this 
escalating opioid epidemic in our country. We identified problems both with the, both with the Ontario College of Pharmacists, whose inspections don't look for missing drugs, with Health Canada that only touched 3% of Ontario pharmacies last year and doesn't look at the distribution chain to see which pharmacies are getting large shipments, as it happens in the States. And in Ontario, we've got a very sophisticated, state-of-the-art narcotics monitoring system, which logs every single opioid prescription in the province, but they're not looking for high prescribers. We think that the tools are already in hand in many cases. People just aren't engineering the tools to work in their favor and catch these pharmacists. Carolyn Jarvis, Chief Investigative Correspondent with Global News. Thank you very much for the time this morning. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Right now, we want to talk about the man once known as America's dad. Yeah, he could learn today, Bill Cosby, whether or not he will be going to prison. Cosby was, of course, convicted of drugging and sexually assaulting a Toronto woman earlier this year. This week, prosecutors went to the judge and said they'd like to see a sentence of five to ten years. Cosby's lawyer says the 81-year-old comedian is too old and frail to serve time behind bars bars, and says there should be house arrest. Greg Hillouli joins us now. And uh, Greg... If you follow him on Twitter, you would have read this. And uh, Greg, I always have to take a deep breath before bringing you on the air. It's great to connect with you as always. But here is a a tweet from just uh, a couple of days ago, yesterday, I guess. Bill Cosby awaits sentencing. He's been convicted, but he isn't behind bars. The courts don't see sexual assault for the heinous crime it is. It is, in fact, the murder or attempted murder of your soul. Greg Lahuli joins us. And you know all about this as a sex abuse survivor. Greg, thank you for this. Uh, thanks for having me on, Kathleen. So when you see this happening with Bill Cosby awaiting sentencing, should he been in jail while he'd been awaiting sentencing? Well, a- absolutely. Let- let's assume for a second you're convicted of a serious bank robbery or uh, attempted murder or murder. You don't get to sit at home after you've been found guilty of a serious crime. And the problem is that in releasing someone like Bill Cosby, the legal system sends a message that, look, there's a hierarchy of badness out there, of bad things you can do. Sexual assault isn't one of those. Greg Gilhooley is the author of the book, I Am Nobody, Confronting the Sexually Abusive Coach Who Stole My Life. That coach, of course, is Graham James. Uh, Greg, uh, when you speak out like this and you put those tweets out there and you, and you say that sex abuse is nothing short of the attempted murder of someone's soul, does that resonate with anybody or do you feel like you're sort of just shouting out where no one's hearing? I think things are getting better. I think increasingly... Uh, the the more the legal system, I don't call it a justice system because there is no justice doled out to victims through the legal system. I think the more the legal system is seen to fail, is seen to make grotesque decisions, uh, people rightly get their backs up and get offended and say things have to change. So in an interesting way, the system failing us the way that it doesn't recognize the severity of the crime with respect to Cosby Going forward, things will be better, and hopefully in the future, people who do things like Cosby won't be able to sit at home in their luxurious mansions uh, awaiting sentencing. 
Greg, yesterday we were speculating as to whether or not Cosby would actually be sentenced with jail time. Do you think he's going to end up behind bars? I am the last one to try to predict whatever is going to happen in the legal system because I have seen nothing but failure uh, in my own case with respect to Graham James getting insufficient sentencing. At the same time, I'm also concerned that a movement like Me Too, we we refer to the societal change in in terms of a movement. I don't want the movement or the concept of a movement trampling over what would be rational sentencing. So I don't want a judge to say that in response to what's happening now in the community, we must send Cosby to jail. We must send Cosby to jail because he's a bad man who's been convicted of doing heinous things and he deserves to go to jail, irrespective of whatever movement may be going on out there. No, not only is Greg a survivor, he's also a graduate of Princeton University and the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. So he knows of what he speaks here uh, uh, from all too many aspects, Greg. Uh, can we shift gears and talk a little bit about what's going on in Washington and what may be going on Thursday very publicly as an individual who has accused prospective Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh of some unspeakable things Uh, A lot of people, a lot of men in power in the United States, and women too, have asked the question, why did this woman not come forward earlier? Thursday is going to be a complete gong show in the Senate. The the thing about sexual assault is, is that it is, as Lauren referred to, uh, the the murder of a soul or the attempted murder of a soul. Uh, and it, it's something that, that I've said over and over again. And what that means is when you go through it, and I'm speaking for, from my experience, it took me three decades to come forward uh, because the, the assault takes away your sense of self. It takes away your ability to trust. And quite, quite frankly, it, it's a crime committed in such secrecy that you don't believe anyone's going to believe you. And so you try to deal with the aftermath. Sexual assault is about a lot of things. The, the, the sex and the assault is only a small part of it. What it does to your ability to, to function on a go-forward basis, to believe that you have the ability to control your safety and, and your ability to interact in society, it just removes all of that. And so the aftermath of sexual assault is, is oftentimes worse than the actual assault. What do you say to those, Greg, who are arguing, you know, you need to believe the accused before you believe the accuser because nothing has been proven and there's been no charges laid? Uh, What's your response to those sorts of statements? If that was the standard uh, by which we try to assess what happened, no one would ever be convicted of sexual assault. It's not as if we have a functioning CSI unit uh, patrolling every block in our society. The, the notion that we have from television is that every crime can be determined on a yes or no basis uh, with physical evidence. And that's just not the way we operate. He said, she said, he said, he said, she said, she said, uh, any time you have evidence of someone coming forward and saying something happened, that's evidence. Now, it's it's an impossible situation because an accused can never can never un- unless the accused has had a GoPro on his or her head for the uh, in- entire 
entirety of their life. They can never prove that something didn't happen. But at the same time, you can't just take the word of the accused and, and that's that. So, Greg, as uh, we wrap up here then uh, with Bill Cosby awaiting sentencing, we use the term once known as America's dad. Do you think his celebrity status and history as America's dad will come into play in terms of maybe uh, a lenient sentencing? It shouldn't come into play at all. Uh, Unfortunately for, for Bill Cosby, it will probably hurt him this time because my sense is that a judge it may be more inclined to to not want to do something to offend the current Me Too movement. Uh, it, it's it's so difficult. I mean, look, Bill Cosby is a guy now seen as partially blind, walking with the aid of a cane six months after he went on a, a, a tour to try to rehabilitate himself. So the whole notion of celebrity in society just, just befuddles me at, at first instance. So I don't know what's going to happen with him. All right, Greg Gilhuli, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We very much appreciate the time and the insight, as always, sir. Thanks very much for having me. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.